Welcome on into the show. My name is Denny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur, fresh off of Lawrence Taylor's yacht park down there in Belmar. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? How interesting. Did you see the photos? I I saw. So what were you getting into? Because there were right. he was at two uh, <laughs> uh, golf outings this week, and yeah. one of them I was like, Benny, how did you score that invite? So. Yeah, I think I made it to the smaller one. Uh, I happened to be invited by a random, random connection to Otis Anderson's charity golf tournament last weekend. And as you know, listen, it's a long story. I got a chip on my shoulder about people with money. It was hot. I don't know about golf. So there's, you know, there's a couple things. But the unique part of the evening was when I got asked by someone, they're like, here's Otis Anderson's keys. Go grab LT's bottle for him. Hmm. Sure. Go to this SUV. What do I pull out? But a fucking handle of Johnny Walker. (laughs) And, you know, we go down, and because of the circumstances, I wound up sitting at a table, me, my brother-in-law, Otis Anderson, and Lawrence Taylor for about an hour drinking. That was fucking cool. Okay? Like, that is some next-level shit. We're getting stories out of the guy. He's talking. He's telling some real funny gems. I'm hearing Parcells inside, Belichick inside, what it's like when he gets into the league. Leonard Marshall talking about, hey, I always got my man. And LT going, you're not playing the man. You're playing the ball. You know, like (laughs) gem after gem after gem. So that evening was fantastic, just sipping out of LT's bottle. It was fascinating, though, you know, my experience in this world is with uh, musicians. Mm -hmm. And there were, I've never really like met or gotten down with someone like as famous as Lawrence Taylor in the sports world. I don't know what people like that are like. And you get one-on-one with this guy and it's really interesting, the similar attributes to him and to like a very singularly great like musical performer. It's interesting. You know, they, there's kind of like there's like this one person bubble sort of going on. And it's a little hard to explain until you get around it. But like, it's really obvious when you see it. And, you know, LT was like as big of a rock star in that way as any rock star I've seen, probably. <laughs> that was honestly when we started doing this podcast. One of the things I like really connected with and why I think like the whole whole concept here works is because like when I met you, I'm like, oh, like it, it, it's like very similar minded. You know, you've got the regimen, you've got the routine. The things you care about are are very similar. Um, sure. The and it's 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 just like I think that there are two kinds of people: the people that are driven like that, right, and then achieve whatever success, and then the people that don't quite have the mental chutzpah to get there. It's all mental. It is, but you know, sometimes I look at the people who have that quality and who have gotten the ultimate success because of that quality, but you never lose that quality. Mm. And that quality is not fun to have. Yeah. Like that's the thing I think people forget to delineate is like if you do something singularly great, you were willing to do things very few people were willing to do to get to that point. And I've seen it with with great singers and great songwriters and performers and now athletes that that singular obsession that like when you just get your mind on the one thing, uh, it can be extremely rewarding, but but highly toxic 
Um, and I deal with that having my kids, you know, because you hear about like these stories of Kobe Bryant or something is like, yo, from five years old, one thing I wanted to do. I didn't give a shit hoops. And it made him this this great thing. Luckily, he wound up being a well-rounded individual. But I don't think that's always the case, you know, yeah. and and if you do happen to fail for a variety of reasons, it's not always about your talent. You know, what if LT broke his leg? Yeah. What if, uh, you know, one of these great singers, um, you know, just went through like a mental breakdown or something in real life that didn't allow them to, to go do that, a physical thing, like any number of things. So there's a balance. There should be a balance. And but I do really wonder sometimes, like in order to be singularly great, I don't even know. I don't know if you're allowed to be a normal person. I don't know if you're allowed to exist with all of us because you kind of got to step above in a weird way it's it's a strange it's really a strange anomaly yeah man you got to be crazy to be a genius and you got to just really be dedicated like i can tell you with like the soccer like i was like obsessed with it but there were people that were 10 times more obsessed and put in 10 times more work so it's just it's just crazy but anyway benny you know what segment i'm obsessed with Tell me. This day music history. Let's get to it. So on this day in 1996, I'm bringing up your boy again. Your boy. Okay. The Sultan of Brunei. No, I'm just kidding. Michael (laughs) Jackson's your boy. The Sultan of Brunei, the world's richest man, marked his 50th birthday party with a Michael Jackson concert on the Borneo Island. Michael Jackson earned $15 million for the performance. It was free to all 60,000 people in attendance. And uh, so this got me thinking. I, I've been asked to play one of these things. We got asked to play Jim Rome's birthday party once. <laughs> Pretty penny. It ended up not working out. I would have done it. It could have been fun. But it did open up this window to me to see like, oh, Like, this is how people survive when they get past a certain point. This is where certain money comes from. And just for the sake of the show, I went ahead and found an article called Dirty Cash. Okay. The most shocking private gigs in music history. Okay. 2009, Sting plays for the dictator of Uzbekistan's daughter for $1 million. (laughs) Uh, Jennifer Lopez in 2013 serenades turned Mechistan's leader, who is uh, described by Human Rights Watch as among the most repressive in the world. <laughs> and of course, J-Lo said she would have not have performed if she knew. Right. Uh, the Gaddafi family mm. loved pop, hired Lionel Richie, Nelly Furtado, Mariah Carey, Usher, <laughs> all, all played for the Gaddafi family. Apparently, I didn't know about this, the Sun City Resort in South Africa held these major, major concerts during apartheid. Everybody from like Dolly Parton, Elton John, Liza Minnelli, Queen, played there during this time and didn't take a stand. Even a quote from Brian May from Queen, who you know I love, said, we've thought a lot about the morals of it, and it's something we've decided to do. The band is not political. We will play to anyone who wants to come and listen. Cop out. Um, (laughs) Nicki Minaj, a couple million dollars to go to Angola. Listen to this one. Your boy, Kanye West, gets $3 million to play at the wedding of the grandson of Kazakhstan's leader. 
I mean, it just goes on and on. And I've heard about uh, a lot of bands getting hired to go play in like, uh, you know, some steel oligarchs uh, daughter's 16th birthday party in Russia and stuff. So I think people wonder sometimes how these uh, careers stay afloat and how people stay rich. And it's this kind of backroom butt buttering that keeps it all afloat. I love that you brought up Jim Rome in, in the company of Gaddafi, you know, <laughs> Russian oligarchs. That's I that's mean, hilarious listen, to me. It's 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 about the kind of money you have to toss around. <laughs> Jim Rome's got Gaslight Anthem money, you know, and uh, Gaddafi's got Lionel Richie money. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's a big Jim Everett guy. All right, Benny. On this day in 1981, not to you kind of make this sad because, you know, we've been very optimistic thus far without having to say optimistic episode. But on this day in 1981, U.S. singer-songwriter Harry Chapin, who had success in the 70s with the song Taxi, W-O-L-D, one of my favorites, uh, and Cats in the Cradle, that mm, everybody knows, classic. was killed at the age of 38, suffering a cardiac arrest while driving on the New York Expressway. His car then hit a tractor-trailer, causing a gas tank to explode. What's not in, in this article is the work that he uh, did trying to stop hunger. Um, but a, a personal connection to this one, Benny. Hmm. My parents What's were supposed that? to go to the show on the night that he died. And Whoa. Yeah, it, it, it did not happen. So if you ever wonder wow. where I get the affinity for folk music and stuff, was kind of raised with Harry Chapin playing in the house. So a yeah. lot of uh, 60s protest music uh, leading into his, his, his 70s pop era. So, yeah. No wonder you like me. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, never knew that about Chapin. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's a uh, that's how I found I mean the first gaslight stuff I ever heard was some of this stuff from American Slang that was like acoustic sets and stuff like that. And then I found the whole thing. I was like, damn. I remember Brian always used to say, he's like, You mind if I'm doing these acoustic things? I'm like, What? <laughs> I'm like, no. I'm like, just don't suck. You know? I'm like, if you go out there and you blow it, yeah, I care. But if you go out there and impress people with gaslight anthem songs, like, cool. More people will like my band and I didn't have to do anything, you know? <laughs> Sweet. Oh, uh, we love an acoustic tour, as we said last week. All right, Benny, let's get down the brass tacks here. Mm. We have an NBA Finals. Uh, for people that tune in for the music stuff, we got big week happening in the NBA, so we're going to get all up on the hardwood this week. But last week, Benny, when I talked on the episode, it was a fake optimism episode. This is a real optimism episode. I think you can see the pep in my step this week. But <laughs> So this week, not so much. But let's get into Game 4. Against Phoenix on Wednesday, the Bucks were down 99-97 with 2 minutes and 30 seconds to go. A defeat would mean they were going back to Phoenix down 3-1, uh, mm-hmm. which only LeBron in recent memory has come back from. But Middleton and Antetokounmpo would not let the Bucks lose. Middleton hit a jumper to tie it with uh, a tough mid-range with 128 left. Uh, they would later take the lead on uh, the following possession. But then the NBA stopped for a second took a freeze frame when Antetokounmpo blocked DeAndre Ayton on a alley-oop that would have tied the game. But then on the ensuing possession, uh, Middleton missed two shots, but then the Bucks got a steal courtesy of Drew Holiday picking the pocket of Chris Paul, who, by the way, there's a lot to talk about with Chris Paul. Middleton would hit the foul shots down the stretch, and thus the Bucks tied the series 2-2, heading back to Phoenix for Game 5. The home team has won 
each game this series. Uh, so, if, you know, if you listen to LT's guy, Bill Parcells, the series hasn't actually started yet. But, right. you know, not to sprinkle a little pessimism in here, but is this series so far just teams holding serve at home? No, I don't think so because okay. the games have been so drastically different, you know, um, and different players have played. And, you know, so, of course, it, it plays a role and it's much harder to to uh, lose on the road. But, I mean, this whole series could go with teams just staying at home. Like, that's, you know, I don't understand what the fucking big deal is right. about this, why everybody goes nuts about it. Like, if everybody keeps winning at home, then it goes to seven games. Then the team like, that, yeah. It's not like we're, we're in a stalemate <laughs> here where it's just going to keep going and going. So, I, I mean, of course, I think it plays a big role, especially I got to imagine with, like, some younger players – you know, two, three years in, whose only experience in the league is the fucked up season to the bubble to now, who maybe aren't accustomed to the type of crowds. I mean, and and there is value to it. Like, mm. it is harder to shoot a free throw when 25,000 people are yelling at you. Right. It's, you know, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more outside noise. You can't hear your coaches. And that environment, you know, some of the old pros are used to and maybe some of the youth is not used to. And in that uh, hand, I would give the advantage to Milwaukee because Phoenix is dealing with a lot of guys who have literally never been in this spot. And, you know, if we were talking about Phoenix five months ago, we would have mostly all said they were too young to get here uh, and don't have enough experience to get here, be being that Chris Paul was the only one really with the miles on that team, I guess Crowder mm. too. So I think that's in play here. But as far as uh, how this is going to pan out, let's talk about game four a little bit. Yes, okay? let's do. Well, now, I have some stats for you. Because I'm if, sure if you, you were them. sweating. <laughs> and you were the one touting this optimism episode last week <laughs> when who was sitting here steady, nice and steady, going, listen, I think the Bucks are fine. I liked what I see in game two. I think they're going to do this. I think they're going to do that. And of course... Your boy is right again. If more people <laughs> listen to the toot up, Daddy, I would be known as a prophecy at this point. Bill Simmons would be taking his takes from me. But, you know, the interesting thing about this is like, of course, Giannis is the best player in the Bucks. I'm not going to say anything but that. But there is some truth in the idea that Chris Middleton may be the most important player for the Bucks right now. And it's in the stats. I mean, this postseason. The Bucks are two and five in games that Middleton scores 17 or less. And in games he scores 18 or more, the Bucks are 12 and two. I mean, yeah. proof's in the pudding right there. They need that secondary score. And you see what happens to that team when they start relying a little too much on Drew Holiday and Pat Connaughton for their offense. It's just not going to work. It needs to stem from Giannis. And Middleton needs to knock down these shots to make it work. He also has been getting to the line again, which I really appreciate. Can we talk a little bit about Drew Holiday's offense? Yes, please. Because, you know, everybody's been super focused on his defense, which he should be. He's punishing Chris Paul. He's an absolute pleasure to watch in the defensive end. Like, I really don't know if I've seen a player just annoy guards and small forwards more than drew holiday does right. just gets his body in front gets its hand and everything so pesky and i really appreciate it his offensive game uh is terrible yeah sometimes and he's he's almost got this like i know the numbers don't really tell the tale 
I believe in a Drew Holiday, like pull up three point shot about as much as a Russell Westbrook one. Like there is no point when that leaves his hands and I'm going, oh, that one's good. Yeah. I never believe in it. I never see him go in. Even when they do, they're not pretty. I don't think it's his shot. He has this interesting like driving game where he can get to the rim, but he's not a great finisher. Um, I think he's looking for fouls down there. So I appreciate the fact that he's staying aggressive. You have to, to keep the offense honest, but that's a very real issue. Maybe moving forward. You know, I hadn't really gotten to see drew holiday operate on a day-to-day level as much as I have now. And his offense is concerning. Um, in this series, it might not matter because they might not need it. And the, uh, uh, the scale in what he's doing to Chris Paul maybe is more important. But the question is, is Drew Holiday doing this to Chris Paul or is Chris Paul hurt? Well, I think that there's definitely something to the Chris Paul being hurt thing. I mean, you go back to game one when he was kind of going back and forth with Malika Andrews when they had the towel cover him on the bench. So something definitely happened there. Um, I think we won't hear about it. If they win the title, but if they lose the title, we're going to be like, oh, yeah, he was playing through like a, a fractured hand and, and stuff like that. And I also you think so, though. Do you think he's going to push that narrative with the way his career went already? Oh, of I, course. I think that's one of the reasons he's so mum on it is because he's already known as the guy who can't stay healthy for a series. Mm. I think he might keep this to the chest forever this might be one of those ones we find out in a documentary like 25 years from now right no but i i think in today's day and age with social media if, if you're like oh yeah i played to a fractured hand right that 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 that's going to speak more volumes than anything else he could possibly do well all of a sudden, he's a warrior now. yeah 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 exactly yeah, but a, uh the Chris Paul thing is is interesting in this series because he has, as we talked about last week, the highest offensive output in two games that he's ever had, and now he's in the corner. He's falling down. And this narrative, it's amazing the sliding doors we've had between last week. Last week, we were yeah. ready to anoint Chris Paul, top five point guard all time, and now Giannis comes through with the block, and it's like... Like, oh, this is the Giannis series. So, right. but one of the things that I wanted to touch on that I think is the been a difference in the series these last two games is, and people want to shit on Mike Boonholzer all the time. God knows I've done it. But going after driving the lane, getting to the line, and drawing the fouls has been the biggest difference. Getting this young Phoenix team in foul trouble has been ridiculous. I mean, they did it to Aiton in game three. Um, they, they they tried to do it to Booker last game, but he was right. able to get away with eight fouls and stuff like that. So they see that, you know, as we, as we get along here, that this Suns team is thin. The Bucks are thin, too. But if they can, you know, kind of keep punching, keep getting these guys out of the way, that's going to lead to better opportunities for Giannis down low. Uh, for sure. Now, here's another question about Bud and Giannis is who got Giannis off the three-point line? Right. Was it Bud or did Giannis just finally, like, put it together? I mean, it's one of the things I really like about that guy. And I like about when Giannis talks. He's like, he always views himself as this – uh you know, incomplete masterpiece, mm. you know, which I appreciate. He's not going into post-game interviews saying, I'm the best. I got to, you know, he says, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this to get better. And he's actually someone who may be affected by the chorus of pundits saying the same thing. And he's a reasonable person. Mm. So maybe he went, 
let's give it a shot. Let's see if they're right. Or was it like a directive from the coaching staff that they're, they're running offense a different way? Because uh, I'd say at the beginning of the playoffs, the offense was give Giannis the ball at about 28, 30 feet, set the one high pick. If people are backing off him, he has the right to take the shot. But often that led to the Giannis wall that led to the collapse and everybody falling back. And now he seems to be getting the ball somewhere around the top of the key. The picks are a little tighter up there and he's making a much more active effort to not only get to the rim, but kick out when he's down there. He seems like he's uh, becoming a better passer on the fly. So a lot of it, I think, should be credited to Giannis and, um, Maybe even the way he's running the flow of the offense right now is getting guys like Middleton some better shots and easier looks, you know? It's impossible to escape the narrative, especially in the playoffs and you're a a young guy. If he's seeing, oh, I'm Shaq, and he thought he was Kobe this whole time, and that changes your mindset, that's empowering. Now, the thing in this— Like Jason Kidd's fault. Yeah, yeah, dude, I've been saying this for so long. Jason Kidd set, you know, he may have gave, give, given Giannis an edge for like two years, but he set him back long term. It's, it, it, it's crazy like yeah. that. Potentially. But, Benny, do you want to hear? Now, this series has been so crazy from an all-time perspective. We've had some crazy stats. I'll, I'll, I'll go with the Giannis Middleton ones first. Giannis and Chris Middleton have combined for 227 points this series. That's the second most by a duo in their first uh, four career NBA Finals games. Only Durant and Westbrook had more in 2012. Wow. Chris Middleton, you know, we, we want to sleep on him a, a lot, right, for his inconsistency. Chris Middleton has had 15 game-tying or go-ahead shots in the fourth quarter or OT this postseason. That's tied wow. with LeBron in 2007 for the single most in the last 25 seasons. Um, one more for you. And this, this to me, is, is the kicker of really where this postseason's Giannis and Chris stand in the all-time pantheon. Uh, Giannis and Chris are the third-paired teammates over the last 50 years to each have a 40-point game in the NBA Finals. The others, LeBron and Kyrie, and Kareem and Magic Johnson. Wow. Like, what's happening? I mean, those are <laughs> legitimate stats right here. So, let me ask you this. Yeah. As a Bucks fan. Yeah. Let's be the most optimistic we're Ooh. ever going to be right okay. now which is this is the start of the Bucks solidifying as the top team in the East, wins the finals. They got this team locked up. This team is locked up for years and years and years. If they actually pull this off, are you thinking the Bucks go in as like a favorite next season? Absolutely not. This is listen. If if, if Giannis is gonna start the winning narrative, it has to be this season because next year's Brooklyn. Like I firmly believe this. Next year is Brooklyn, as I believe this year. And if 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 this postseason wasn't so wacky, it would have been Brooklyn's championship. Mm, okay. Um, but I think like the injuries and everything. You almost get the sense, and I and I hate to put this on wax because I've been feeling it in the back of my mind. Uh, you, you almost get the sense that the Bucks team is like a team of destiny with the way things have shaken out for them this postseason. So. If, but is this the new NBA? Ooh, you know, like that. Like that's this. where that's where I got to ask a little. Like, you know, all people have been begging for for years is parity, mm-hmm. right? Like, especially after the Warriors run, when it's like, and even me as a, as a big basketball fan, 
I love those Warriors teams. I mean, like, how could you not? It was beautiful basketball to watch. The thing I did not like about those teams was the fact that, like, very clearly, if this team stays healthy, they're going to win the championship. I didn't like that. Mm. You know what I mean? I don't like when the entire regular season is a foregone conclusion. it, It makes it way less fun for me. And they made changes. You know, they started messing with the cap again to try to make it a little more difficult. Uh, try to get teams to hold on to their players and have a big advantage, restructuring the draft so tanking's not as important. And last season, you know, by the end, you had 20-plus teams still engaged all the way to the end of the season. You had surprises going in. So this could be an indication of the league actually successfully having more parity now, right? I mean, I think that's so, but I think, you know... What you said is like one angle. I think with how player development has happening and the internationalization of the NBA is you're getting, I mean, you're getting these incredible kids coming in. I mean, the, there's this kid that just signed with the overtime league from the Philippines who's seven foot and he's making six figures. He's going to develop in, in this league. So, um, I think you're going to see the next couple drafts be like so deep and really the future of the league is in these next two really where you have 20 picks and, and you know, we're going to get into the draft in, in just a little bit, but I think um, there's been more talent coming in. And so you're seeing from top to bottom, these teams have an opportunity. Like you have like a John Morant in Memphis, like every team uh, theoretically has a guy who is a star. They may not be superstars, uh, but Every team has a star, and I think it's, you know, number one, we have more talent stateside that's being developed because kids are incentivized to play basketball because of the big contracts. And number two, you know, you've had almost 25 years of the international game, and I think you're starting starting to see dividends of it. Yeah, yeah, all good points. Now, to get back to legacy for something. Yes. I, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, this is the – the finals where it's like, okay, if Chris Paul wins, he's all of a sudden cemented maybe, you know, top 30, top 20 all time, top three to five point guards of all time, you know, getting into these really, really selective lists. The thing that bothers me about it is, you know, we watch these people play thousands of games and do, do things over and over and over again. And we all know that so much of outcomes is variables luck, timing, other players, like so many things that account for you winning a game, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like, are are we talking about the Sixers breaking up right now? If Kawhi Leonard's shot is an eighth of an inch the other way or something, probably not. So the thing I kind of resent about this is like the idea that if the ball bounces like one way away from Chris Paul, that that completely changes the framework of how we view him. I think it's an error in the way we see things. And I think, of course, championships are important. And, of course, there are some players who know how to get over the hump and some players who don't. Uh, But it just seems to be still in the the NBA a, uh, a trouble with the narrative, that it always just comes down to this one simple thing it doesn't always everything have to do with you, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's very much been the narrative post-Jordan, how you have these people raised on it and how, 
the allure of six championships is like the greatest thing of all time. Now, I don't think people exactly consider Bill Russell the greatest. I mean, some people, <laughs> right. but the Bill Russell, the greatest player of all time. And he has the most championships and no one's ever going to top that. Um, So there's definitely something to what you're saying, but it's because greatness isn't quantifiable, right? Like, like you Mm. can't, if you watch someone and you're like, that's the greatest player I've ever seen. It's trying to use math and metrics to something that is the eye test. It's a reason why anecdotal experience, right? right. It's the reason why, you know, you can't say, Hey, this is the greatest painting of all time because it's, Everybody has a different view on it. Personally, like your favorite player of all time is probably different than mine. Is because it's what we. Well, view I'm not going to we... make the argument that Kenyon Martin is the best <laughs> player of all time. Okay. <laughs> no, but it's. I it's... did at one point. <laughs> I mean, and and then different and favorite or best and favorite are two different conversations. So yeah. I think it's it's a weird thing that we do, but that's because it's the easy and the lazy thing. And yeah. we see someone like LeBron, it's motivated his entire life trying to chase yeah. Michael Jordan. So I don't know. Well, I mean, but that's where we've had this conversation before where LeBron, I don't think he's as obsessed personally with the actual quest, but I think he's just fully knowledgeable of how people view it. Mm. You know what I mean? I think he's smart like that. And he knows that this is the way you do it. And you make some little dings to your character during your career. So people will look at your career differently afterwards. I think he's he's had his head on that narrative since he was like 17 somehow. Because he's like the oldest young person I've ever seen. Well, we're not going to get into Space Jam. That's a different Oh, I, I don't want to start you on that. <laughs> Every time a Space Jam thing comes up, I know I'm going to get a text. Look at this bullshit. Um, can I just share a couple Devin Booker stats for you before we get off of this and on the team? Yeah. To yeah. Team USA. All right. So Devin Booker, sensational game four, really has, has been a real revelation this entire postseason. Uh, struggled with the inconsistency a bit, but uh, Devin Booker went 42 in game four. Middleton, as we said, went for 40. It's the fourth time in NBA Finals history that opposing players have scored 40 points in the same game. The same instant, the last instance was in 2001 with Shaq and Allen Iverson. And this is is where it gets crazy for Devin Booker. Devin Booker joins Rick Barry and Wilt Chamberlain as the only players to record at least three 40-point games in their first career postseason. And uh, Devin Booker has already had the most points in finals history after scoring 10 or fewer points in the previous game. Uh, The previous record was 35 by George Mikan in 1949, finals game three. So... I don't know what's a bigger accomplishment here, all of what I just mentioned, or the fact that he's allowed to get eight fouls on a finals game and still be yeah. playing. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, he's a killer. Yeah, he's an absolute killer on offense, and like, it wouldn't shock me if one of these games, especially one of these road games that everyone's talking about, is met with like a Devin Booker like fifty-five point performance <laughs> or just something that you can't, you know, Giannis could do whatever he wants, but yeah. a guy starts going that nuts. Wins playoff games. And he seems to have that acumen. You yeah. know, he, uh, he's got all the tools, and he definitely seems to have the attitude of a killer, you know? And the consistency will come. I mean, he, people forget yeah. he's 24. He's nowhere yeah. even near the prime of his career, and he's putting up these 40-point games. So and he's, got, he's got a wonderful, I mean, just as a fan, 
that guy's got a wonderful offensive package. You know, like I love watching that guy get to his spots. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty thing to watch. It is. And, you know, I take back what I said a couple of weeks ago. I owe Devin an apology. Kendall, you finally got it right this time. You got your all-time <laughs> great to pet to tag your wagon to. So. Listen, if Kendall's listening this deep into a tune-up, we're doing okay anyway. <laughs> um, all right, Benny, let's get into Team USA real quick. So, interesting situation the past couple weeks for Greg Popovich and crew out there in Las Vegas. They lost to Nigeria, which was a shocker. Then they lost to Australia. But then the L's just keep on coming on Wednesday. Sham Sharania of The Athletic reports that Jeremy Grant and... Bradley Beal, my guy, are now in health safety pro- protocol for COVID. And, you know, this is something I'm going to get into in the encore a little bit. But uh, Grant has not tested positive for corona- for the coronavirus, but him and Beal are in protocol, as I said. It was later reported that Bradley Beal is not going to Tokyo off the squad because um, of the time he's going to miss. Uh, first off, this is tragic. Hope those these two are okay. But, Benny, we got to turn the page, turn the corner. I want to know, who do you think should replace Bradley Beal on this team? Mm. I mean, who's the contenders right now? I think, you're, I think your guy is in, uh, is in a solid spot. To Joe get... Harris? No. LaMelo. <laughs> LaMelo to the Olympics. Yeah, I, was, I mean, I look at that team, and, uh, you know, even with a Lillard on the floor and stuff like that, like, I would love LaMelo on that team for a bunch of different reasons. He's got that, you know, that young LaMelo swagger. You know he's going to work real hard, not be intimidated. And he'll be someone who can go out there the whole time and just create for everyone. That's what he does. Maybe it would be nice for Team USA to have that. But I think, you know, it's the Olympics. And it's supposed to be, like, for America, it's supposed to be kind of a show and kind of fun, you know? So, yeah, I'd much rather have – have a, a ball out there than a number of other players. You know, I think there's a couple pros and cons to that. I think he'd be great. He knows the international game. God knows he's been playing international basketball since he was 16. That's right. But his shooting in international basketball was the reason why I hated him the entire season because I was like, this can't be real, but apparently it is. He's just got to feed Kevin Durant. He'll be fine. <laughs> you know who I want on this team? I want huh. John Morant to be that point guard. Are you kidding me? Give me Ja. I mean, again, fun. I don't know if that makes them that much better yet. I mean, but, uh, but I mean, we got to give credit where credit's due. Like yeah. these, you know, the Nigerian team is not not what they used to be. Right. It's filled with filled with former and current pros. The Australia team, the same thing. Um, not to say that the U.S. team shouldn't have won, and the mm-hmm. roster isn't much stronger. But you know. Um, Maybe they're just uh, maybe they're just limping in. We got a bunch of yeah. older guys, people with injuries. Maybe they're just not planning on really, really stepping it up till they get there. I'm not too worried about it. I'm not too worried about it either. Though I am worried about Greg Popovich being the coach of this team. And yeah, the, yeah, you know. maybe he's maybe he's not connecting anymore. I mean, listen, wasn't he an old, uh, old man? You know, wasn't he on uh, Larry Brown's staff at the Athens games? Uh oh, pretty sure. Yikes. Pretty sure. That's- Let's bring Larry B back. <laughs> All right, Benny. Last basketball topic. We promise. Thank you for you know supporting us and doing all of this stuff. But it's big basketball time a year. Uh, oh, yeah. Come on. All right, so we'll get more into the draft next week. But I just want to do a quick primer here. Since you nailed the LaMelo pick last year, Benny, who do you like up top? 
of this draft. Yeah, I mean, like, as far as the eye test goes, it's like, this is where I think a GM and a person greatly differ, you know, because yeah. I watch some tape on these and not like I'm getting tape. Let me be clear. <laughs> uh, I watch YouTube on these guys and uh, and, you know, like I could sit there and be like, ah, maybe I make a case for Evan Mobley here. Ah, maybe I make a case for Jalen Green at number one. But the thing is, is like, you know, my job's not on the line. <laughs> um, and and I think Cade Cunningham is so simply just like the safest bet right yeah. now. Like like that guy is guaranteed to at least be pretty darn good, you know, like and and I really, really, really like with his skill set, his age, what he brings to the table. It's it's highly doubtful without injury that that guy's not going to produce at the NBA level. So. I think we're locked into Cade Cunningham at number one with Detroit. The only thing that would change that is if Detroit tries to get real funky, you know, and move around and get an active player now. Um, but I don't see it. I think they're grabbing them. And to me, Houston is in a weird predicament because it's that classic thing. You know, they, um, they have some bigs. They have Christian Wood. They have uh, useful players at that position, which you'd be like, oh, they don't need Evan Mobley. They need a Jalen Green who can come in and create and do stuff like that. But you got to use logic in this. Like Houston, with either of these guys, isn't going fucking anywhere next year. So the idea of drafting someone for a positional need there uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think you got to go talent. From everything I hear about Evan Mobley, you know, the, the floor is, is a rotational <laughs> athletic power forward and the, and the ceiling gets up to Chris Bosch. So um, I'm like in Mobley at number two to Houston. And then I think Cleveland in a, in a similarly strange situation because they have so much invested in Sexton and Garland. Those were their top picks going into it. A Coro last season and now the best players for them on the board are, uh, you know, Jalen Green or Jalen Suggs, um, you know, both creators, both guys who need the ball in their hands and, uh, you know, uh, Suggs being a point guard. So they're in another one of those things where I think they should ignore positional need and just grab the best player they can. But they might fall into that trap and take a like a wild swing on a Kaminga or something, which you know, seems like the least safe guy in the top. Yeah. Now I'm liking my favorite player moving up. I have two guys I really like. Yeah. Okay. And, and we can start talking about them now. So uh, you can give me credit next season. <laughs> I love James Booknight from UConn. Mm. And I think a team that needs like a little bit of help and a little bit of scoring and stuff like that right now could really use a player like that. And I'd love to see him drop on like, you know, Charlotte to 11, New Orleans at 10, maybe even Golden State at seven because you could pop him in right now and he kind of fills a need that you need, which would be like a, a bench scorer and someone who can dribble a little bit. I also really like that kid from Michigan, uh, Wagner, mm. Wagner. Is he a Wagner, Wagner or a Wagner? Wagner? I don't even know yet. <laughs> um, but he's, you know, he's a big, he's versatile, he's ready to play now. I think uh, I'd like to see him also uh, with the Golden State. Now, here's the thing. Are Orlando planning on moving with the fifth and the eighth pick 
And is Golden State planning on moving with the 7th and 14th picks? I think that's the thing that could really shake this up the most because when you have people uh, with two picks in the top 15, they have so much versatility that they could move around a lot. And I have a feeling we're going to see one big swing from uh, a team that wants to get up. And I think we're going to see something from like Oklahoma City at six. Golden State was seven and 14, uh, you know, maybe even like, um, you know, Orlando packaging down for, you know, one better player instead of two, because the last thing they need is, hmm. is more young, versatile, unfinished players to finish off their roster, being that that is their entire roster. Yeah. Uh, so that's where I see the draft going for now. It's getting a little closer. We're starting to get a little more uh, uh, a little more transparency. Probably the only guy that I've watched a lot of is is, is is Book Knight. And I don't know, man. I'm just skeptical of these UConn guards when they get into the NBA. I mean, we've had – we thought Shabazz Napier was going to be this great scorer. We thought – I mean, Kemba has had a solid career, but not what people thought it was going to be coming out of UConn. So I'm always a little skeptical – of, uh, of 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 these Yukon guards, which is which oh, is you the, mean like Ray Allen, <laughs> dude? That was like twenty five years ago. <laughs> like, but at, at the same time, you know, I, I say that in one breath, and then in the next breath, I'm like, what a bad argument! Just because a guy went to one school, <laughs> yeah. that they're all going to be the fucking same. So, so yeah. what do I know? Um, do love Kate Cunningham. Uh, tough at the top of this draft. Uh, played Marquette this year. Lit us up for 28, um, and then, you know, I just followed him the rest of, of the season. Finishes in, in traffic like you would expect an NBA guard to, to do. So, a- absolute joy to watch. That's going to be fun up there in Detroit. Um, just Then just wanted to piggyback off of the Warriors stuff that you said. I don't care for this, but I've heard the rumor of them trying to package a top pick um to try to bring Ben Simmons to the bay. Mm. Don't know how this would work. Um you know, I think that they have enough reclamation projects on their hands as, as it is, but really what they just need, they just need eight guys to put together a rotation so that this Steph Clay and Draymond thing can be fun next year. Just you know, get like a, you know, enough guys to become like a like a 60 to 5 seed stay out of the playing tournament. And you know, try to make a, a run and try to build this thing back because when Steph gets hot, nobody's beating them. That's true. So. Now, the big uh, one of the big things I'm really fascinated about in this draft is you know, like uh, we watched it continue this off season where a lot of you know blue chip prospects are deciding to you know play in Australia, play for the G League, play internationally, and uh, keep themselves out of college altogether. And this is the first year we get to see these G League guys, the G League Ignite, come into the league. And I'm curious. I'm really curious to see if, uh, you know, your Jalen Greens, Kaminga, Isaiah Todd, you know, these guys expected to go in the first round are going to look more or less pro-ready as a result. I think that that eye test is going to determine a lot for the future of how this is done. Yeah, and I've heard a lot of people like not a, you know, I, I feel like Kaminga's stock is dropping and I'm, yeah. you know, based off absolutely nothing. I feel like it's just like people like, eh, he's 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 not as good as your Mobley's or your Cunningham's well, he, at the he top. He fits that he fits that model that has failed a lot. Mm. So I understand why people are nervous because he is a 
a high ceiling, low floor guy. Yeah. And you've seen a lot of very athletic, 6'7", 220 players just like him come into the league and never figure out offense, never figure out defense, never figure out how to get into the right places and kind of just exist. And I think he has a high likelihood of that if he doesn't reach his ceiling. It's probably what people are nervous about. You know what I'm going to do for us, Benny? I'm going to reach out to my guy, Fran Fischel, and you can ask him all the questions you want. Oh, I would love it. I love it. Because listen, (laughs) you know, I only have a regular YouTube (laughs) subscription. As I said, I'm not getting (laughs) tape from teams yet. I don't have any uh, GMs on my speed dial, you know. Right. <laughs> I love that when I listen to radio. Like, yeah, I've talked to like seven G- <laughs> GMs. Just sit there texting all Dude, fucking day. I gotta tell you, they're more it? accessible. Just like you say, like musicians are more accessible than you think. NBA front office people more accessible than you may think. Yeah, they probably want to talk more yeah. than we think, right? <laughs> they're like, they're like, I do really important stuff. Can anybody ask me some questions? I wonder if like band managers get the same thing where they're just like, you know, I'm keeping this whole fucking thing together here. You want to interview me a little? Oh, man. All right, Benny, we've reached that point of the show where you want one more take. We got one more take. And even if you didn't ask for it, we're giving it to you anyway. It is time for the tune-up encore. Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need y'all to roll. Well, let's go baseball. Baseball is my encore section, okay? okay? And I want to talk to Yankees fans right now. (laughs) Okay. My friends. My good friends who I've been listening to irrationally go crazy on the radio since I was a little kid. One of the more fun things to listen to, really. At this point, I so enjoyed being a rational Yankees fan listening to irrational Yankees <laughs> fans. Cause I, but, but sometimes I feel bad. And this season, I got to be honest, I feel bad. <laughs> and I want my Yankees family and my Yankees friends just tap out of this year, okay? <laughs> It'll make everything easier. It'll make Hal's job easier. It'll make Brian's lack of a job easier soon. Aaron's lack of a job easier soon. Stop going to the stadium. Don't care as much this season. Don't force them into some terrible, you know, trade where they're giving up prospects to get someone who gets us into a fucking wild card game or something. I don't want it. You're right. What we need in New York is rings. I want number 28. It's not coming this season. So let's relax. Let's take it back. Let's let Hal lose a little money maybe (laughs) so he knows he has to do something. And let's enjoy the rest of the season. Enjoy Vlad. Enjoy Tatis. Enjoy Otani. Enjoy some baseball. Just relax a little, you know? You know my biggest pet peeve with baseball among all the others that I've shared on this uh, on this podcast is the fact that if if a team is like looking like they're not going to make the playoffs at the deadline, they're just like, oh, we got to sell everything and start. Yeah, yeah, it's like people get so crazy. It, you know, it's because it's these GM guys that are trying to keep their job. You know, it's all, it's all it is. I think Cashman might be trying to lose his job at this point. <laughs> it's like I'm 25 years in. I'm bloated. <laughs> I take so much shit. Let me just. I'm out. I'm going to go on a boat for the rest of my life. You know when I knew Cashman was done? When he started doing this crazy shit on the side, like climbing the Empire State, but, or no, climbing on the New York Times oh, building. that was nice. He's raising money. Oh. <laughs> All right, Benny, my encore for this week, and I was going to, you know, keep it New Jersey, but, you know, I kind of 
had an interesting situation this week. So as the finals winds down, it really winds down a busy month or busy year of work. You know, I've done two seasons. There was a six-week off-season that there was really no time for a vacation. So I was trying to plan my off-season plans, Cancun on three, all of that stuff. And I was looking, you know, across the pond, Europe, haven't been back there, vaccinated, ready to go. And what I was not expecting to find is this Delta variant is no joke. I think people should really be talking about it more. I was trying to go to Mallorca, which is like the hot spot for COVID right now. Um, so all over Europe, you know, there, there's there's been conflicting reports because people want American tourism back. But at the same time, COVID, the, this Delta variant is spraying like wildfire. Um, I have friends down in Australia. They've gone back down into lockdown. I feel like something yeah. in the U.S. is kind of imminent because that's kind of been how this whole thing works. So, folks, get vaxxed. Do all of the things. Uh, hope this booster comes fast enough. And, you know, don't let your guard down. So that's my encore yeah. for this week. I think you're definitely right and i i had one of those like eerie march 11th feelings last night where i got a series of news in a row like oh la is putting a mass mandate on i saw like a tweet from rich eisen saying he had it then the yankees game gets canceled yeah. and i'm like oh this feels familiar mm. and uh yeah i think you're 100 percent right i think it's time to to lock down again and and fuck it like for me, I'm going. I'm throwing a mask back on, yeah. like I am. Like I going into a crowded place. I'm just tossing it on again because I don't give a fuck, and it's easy. And I don't want this to spread anymore. So. Yeah, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Anyway, playing ways to get in contact with the show, you can email us at the tune-up podcast at gmail.com. Two P's in there. You can follow us on all the social platforms: your Twitters, your Instagrams, your TikToks at the tune-up HQ. If you want to follow Big Man, he's at Benny Horowitz1, number one in your mind, number one in your heart, number one on Twitter. I am at Denny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? Everybody love everybody. The show has ended. Go in peace. You've been listening to The Tune-Up.